Welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman. And today I'm talking to Dr. Laura Carlson about the Carolingian reception of Isidore of Seville. Dr. Carlson earned her DPhil from Oxford and is now professor of history at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Carlson is also the host of the excellent food history podcast, The Feast, which you should definitely check out. Her article, Adoption, Adaptation, and Authority, The Use of Isidore and the Opus Caroli, appears in the edited volume Isidore of Seville and His Reception in the Early Middle Ages, published by Amsterdam University Press. Well, Dr. Carlson, thanks for joining us today. Why don't you start us off by introducing listeners to this text that your article works on, the Opus Caroli. The Opus Caroli Regis Contrasonatum, or uh, it's often known as the Libri Carolini, both invoke the name of Charlemagne. It's either the work of King Charles against the Synod or the Caroline books. Uh, you can really use either term. But it stands as still the longest or rather the biggest text we have from the Carolingian period. And this was as we believe, written against the Byzantine Empire, uh, which had recently repealed its policy of iconoclasm at the 787 Council, Second Council of Nicaea. So what we have is really four giant volumes or four giant books that detail and break down just exactly why the Byzantines are wrong in their new appropriation of what they see as image worship or idolatry, as they're going to call it. And so this has come down to us in a couple of different manuscript traditions. Uh, one is partially damaged, partially lost, uncompleted. The second one is a little bit more uh, formal, a little bit more um, um, a little bit more polished. But it has remained this mystery because, again, with the intellectual legacy, uh, the textual legacy that the Carolingian given us, that they've given us a range of texts, range of manuscripts. You have the so-called Carolingian Renaissance. Yet here we have these massive, massive texts, these two great manuscripts that seem to have made not a ripple, uh, either in terms of the Byzantines' response to an entire attack about their policy, or the Carolingians themselves seem not to engage at all with them following what we believe is their completion right around the turn of the 8th century, probably in the seven, eight, like late 780s, prior to at least the 794 um, Synod of Frankfurt. So it has endured as this rather complicated problem of what exactly, what significance this this work, this Opus Caroli had for the in Carolingian intellectual program or the Carolingian political program against their rivals as successors to the Roman inheritance, um, who really was uh, the intellectual, spiritual, political inheritors to Rome. Was it going to be the Byzantines? Was it going to be the Carolingians? And it's at least thought that this was the Carolingians' attempt to to assert their primacy, uh, spiritually speaking, at least, um, and intellectually as a dovetailed element um, against the Byzantines. Could you tell us then, too, a little bit about what exactly iconoclasm is, and then maybe also as well, why why this did matter so much to uh, to the Carolingians, why this, this um, cultural, religious uh, episode in the Eastern Mediterranean is, is sort of resonating in, in Northwest Europe? 
The policy of iconoclasm dates from the earlier part of the 8th century, um, when it was believed that a policy of having idols or painted images, graven images, as you might want to call them, of, say, Mary, the saints, Jesus, etc., were actually idols, that they were an affront to God, um, and that they were actually displeasing to God. Um, so there was a formal imperial policy that was enacted by by the Greeks, by the Byzantines in the early part of the 8th century to absolutely prohibit them, to get rid of them. There's the famous removal of the um, icon above the chalk gate of the imperial palace, and that is often seen as the, the beginnings of this policy that lasted until at least 787, where the policy is repealed, but... Again, this is where the Carolingians had a problem with it. The new policy that was to replace this breaking of images, as it's often called, iconoclasm is often called the breaking of images, the new Byzantine acceptance of images, the Carolingians saw as going way too far in the opposite direction, um, a 180-degree turn to now saying, well, we're actually bringing idolatry back, that the new policy you have towards images is the exact problem that you were trying to get rid of to begin with, um, that this is... Now, again, an affront to God because you are worshiping these man-made or human-made images. Uh, and really, worship should only be directed towards God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, etc., exclusively. Um, so any worship of an image of Mary or an image of Jesus is actually idolatry. Now, the Carolingians, why they have such a problem with that is very interesting because when the Byzantines introduced the policy of iconoclasm, there really isn't too much of a response from what will become the Carolingian Empire. I mean, we're really talking about the early part of the 8th century, so we can't really call them the Carolingians just yet, but let's say the Franks. There really is, is not too much of a reaction. Uh, and even when they are bringing it back, or breaking iconoclasm, or when they get rid of iconoclasm, it does take the Carolingians a while to formulate this response. And it, again, is very, very interesting that this massive work that, in theory, is their official response to the repeal of iconoclasm doesn't seem to be recognized or noticed by anyone. I mean, a lot of times it's believed that their main issue is that they weren't invited to the council, the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, um, because this was supposed to be an ecumenical council at which iconoclasm was repealed. The Carolingians weren't invited, and they were considered maybe that they had been overlooked in this. And again, this 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 was a problem for them in terms of their legitimacy and uh, spiritual influence throughout the Mediterranean. Um so there might have been a bit of a snub there that they decided, well, we're just going to refuse to acknowledge any part of this council. And by the way, the thing that was decided at this council, which was the repeal of iconoclasm, is entirely wrong. And now you're going in the entirely opposite direction and you're just as problematic spiritually as you were to begin with. So in no way, shape or form can you claim uh, spiritual legitimacy um, within the Christian tradition. If I can ask you just a purely speculative and counterfactual question, then do you think that the Carolingians would have uh, taken such issue uh, with the results of this council had they actually been there? It's a very good question. They, there was uh, 
political dialogue going on. I mean, there was dialogue obviously going on between the two polities. And a lot of it was not antagonistic in any way, shape, or form. I mean, they, they seemed to be getting on. I mean, there were marriage alliances proposed. There was all this kind of stuff going back and forth. There were trade, things like that. And so you do wonder that this wasn't purely a an antagonistic relationship. And so it's odd that it's only this one council that all of a sudden you get this this massive antagonistic response on the part of the Carolingians. But then again, it doesn't seem to make waves for anyone. Um, the Carolingians don't really acknowledge it. The Pope doesn't acknowledge it. The Greeks certainly don't acknowledge it. And so was this all a tempest in a teapot that by the time it was finished, any kind of kind of affront that the Carolingians took at not being invited wasn't really an issue anymore that they kind of moved on from it. Um, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, I'm almost inclined to say it, it may have prevented this text have being written. Like it may have, uh, if we're going to say the Opus Caroli is the one major response to the 787 council from a spiritual perspective um, and an attack from the Carolinians to the Byzantines related to that, if they had been invited, it, I'm almost willing to say I don't think we would have, you know, four books of 120 chapters, perhaps. Speaking of of four books of 120 chapters, uh, in your article, you ascribe the authorship of of the text to Theodore of Orléans. And I think most most scholars agree with that attribution, but there is uh, some argument about that. We don't really know precisely who wrote the text. Can you can you talk about uh, about how that works? For a long time, there were multiple different intersecting theories. I mean, there were theories that Charlemagne himself wrote it. Uh, Oftentimes, Alcuin is also kind of suggested as either the the main author as opposed to Theodolf being the main author, Alcuin of York being the main author instead of Theodolf, um, or that Alcuin contributed some of the chapters or even perhaps one of the books. Um, often, however, what has been put forth as the best conclusive evidence, and if we, again, this is resting largely on um, both paleography, but also the texts that are cited within, within the work, that it seems... Uh, there's a use and a reliance on Visigothic paleographical notations. Um, and it seems to coincide with much more of a the known texts available in Spanish libraries that, again, if we're going to use Theodore Orleans as having origins in, in Spain, it does, it does dovetail. And that seems to be the best conclusive evidence that we can find. But a lot of people will go back and forth and say Alcuin and Theodolf worked on it together. Um, there are lots of other elements that were just brought in wholesale from other texts from the period. But it does seem that if we compare this work, um, what we have from um, the Opus Caroli, with Theodolf's known text, Theodolf's access to other Spanish texts, I mean, obviously Isidore factors into that, um, the extent to which Theodolf uses specific Spanish texts, um, even Roman texts, in his other work versus in the Opus Caroli. There does seem to be a much, 
much closer affiliation than any other person we at least know of working in the Carolingian court at that time. Um, that, in addition to elements of what he's citing from biblical passages that adhere to his other biblical manuscripts that he'll be responsible for, all these factors, again, seem to add up to Theodolf being the most likely of predominant authors, let's put it that way, of the Opus Caroli. But again, people will go back and forth. And I'm certainly willing to acknowledge a a, a contribution by Alcuin, absolutely. Because if you think about the Carolingian court circle in terms of the intellectual folks working there, certainly Alcuin and Theodolf had are, are going to work together again. They certainly know of each other. They know of each other's works. It's, it is likely there was probably some collaboration in some way, shape, or form that's probably going on. The Opus Caroli deals mostly with iconoclasm and, and, and therefore deals with images. But, but your article really is interested in how this text, how Theodolf of Orléans deals with language. Uh, could you maybe just run listeners through what is your central argument? It's undeniable that obviously iconoclasm um, as a Byzantine policy was about images, that images were considered either idolatrous, um, offensive to God, and then perhaps a modification of that with the 787 Second Council of Nicaea that, all right, images can be helpful for in the appropriate context for worshipers, um, for the faithful to to call to mind God, as long as they were put in the appropriate context that an image was not God. And again, it's very clearly demarcated. And that's that's the key, is that in at least the original um, acts of the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, the talk about images, about how do we appropriately use images in Christian worship or uh, Christian devotion, is a question of language, uh, that there is one particular word to refer to worship in Greek um, versus another word entirely that is used for reverence, which is entirely of a different meaning. That means, again, there is a reverence to the image. That image calls to mind God, calls to mind the divine, but is not worshipped specifically, that there is a very clear demarcation between those two words. I mean, it does come down to an issue of language. Interestingly, in the Opus Caroli, again, it comes down to the question of language that Theodolf, if we're going to take him as the predominant author here, uh, is saying that the Greeks have entirely negated or forgotten or ignored that in the Bible uh, there has been an there is very clear instruction that. Words, i.e. scripture, are the predominant way one understands the message of God, interacts with God. That's really the key communicative link between human and the divine. Images are not, absolutely are not. Um, And so there's there's a language issue on two levels there. Um, That the Greeks actually... We're talking about issues of language unto themselves. But Theodolf is taking it from a different angle entirely of saying images wholesale cannot rival the predominance of scripture, uh, cannot rival the uh, the communicative link that language has been given to humans by God in some ways. Um, and that that's what you should be focusing on. That's that's really the link that that solidifies human and the divine. 
Now, this this volume uh, that the article appears in and the conference that it grew out of are, are really about Isidore of Seville and his reception. So can you tell us a little bit about, about what was the role of Isidore in, in Theodolf's composition of this text? I was really focusing on, well, I suppose you could say there are two intersecting ways Isidore of Seville pops up in the context of Theodolf and Theodolf as the author of the Opus Caroli. One, of course, is Theodolf's own presumed Spanish heritage um, that he had access to and an engagement with Isidore on a level that was, at the time when he was arriving at the Carolingian court, um, much more extensive. Um, And I mean, there are even arguments that he helped popularize Isidore of Seville at the Carolingian court. Um, But more specifically, of course, you have Isidore of Seville's etymologiae or etymologies as this encyclopedic treatment of, well, again, all subjects, but particularly rooted in language, in the trivium, um, grammar, rhetoric, and dialectic. And again, that feeds so directly into what Theodolf is arguing when he's saying the Bible is really the main crux of human uh, human worship, human understanding of the divine message, that there are all these levels to the Bible um, that one can understand and interact with and deepen one's faith by studying the grammar, by studying the um, the syllogisms, by studying the different linguistic forms and uh, complexities that appear in the Bible. And he's pulling this straight from Isidore of Seville, who also was advocating, of course, in the etymologies, the importance of language, that by studying a word and the origins of that word, um, that word's meaning, you could reach a, di- a, a, um, a deeper level of understanding. So the, the great Isidorean scholar uh, Jacques Fontaine claimed that the early medieval period saw a sharp decline in the linguistic disciplines that you're talking about. And, and in fact, you point out in your article that he called this the weakening of the agility of the mind. But you disagree with him. So what does the Opus Caroli show us that Fontaine overlooked? It's a really interesting question, um, because in the study of the tradition of grammatical texts, um, rhetorical texts passed down from either the Greek, but more often the Roman tradition, there has been this, and it has been dismantled, um, you know, over the, over the last decade or so. Um, but there was a very strong tradition that these texts, these grammar books, these um, rhetorical manuals were simply being copied, wrote, that people were just copying them or just passing them down and not actually, well, in some cases, the belief was that they weren't even reading them, that they were just these reference reference texts that sat on a monastic library shelf, um, that they they looked good, that they were some sort of, you know, good school book for very, very introductory level literacy, but you would never really get to the heart of what had been Ciceronian rhetoric, Ciceronian um, dialogue, that we had gone from these high points of Roman literacy, Roman um, literature, uh, which, you know, c- characterized maybe the first, second, third centuries. And then it, it, it just starts waning that few people are writing new treatises in a grammatical or rhetorical tradition, or if they are, they're simply pulling whole chunks out from these existing texts. And again, the argument had gone, they're really not engaging with them all that much, that they're simply just being 
kind of stapled together, if you will, and passed along. Now, I think, or I believe, that the Opus Crowley shows that that not necessarily is the case, that Theodulf in particular, and I, and I would extend this, of course, to other members of the Carolingian court, and, you know, even perhaps from a, a stronger Spanish tradition that Theodulf is pulling on, that he is coming to the Opus Crowley, um, I mean, he's writing the Opus Crowley against the Byzantines, with a much more sophisticated and um, a sophisticated working knowledge of these grammatical traditions, rhetorical traditions that he's pulling on Roman authors. He's pulling on Isidore, who's pulling on these Roman or kind of early medieval authors from a very almost technical grammatical level and saying here in scripture, you can find all kinds of all kinds of linguistic tropes, all kinds of linguistic styles. Um, and that shows just the depths of wisdom. I mean, the belief that the Bible contained an infinite amount of knowledge and wisdom at the time, and that you needed a very significant knowledge in grammar, rhetoric, and dialectic, this, this trivium that Isidore was, was such a proponent of himself, um, to really be a true educated Christian. And of course, you know, with the the connotation that you were a very pious Christian. Um, and they were saying that this was really the problem with the Greeks in turning back to images. They were ignoring this absolute wealth that was contained in scripture. And that was really what they should be paying attention to instead of, you know, a graven image of Mary or Jesus or what have you. And so that's really what I wanted to show is that in those four books, and it, and it goes um, in various levels, I think, you know, book three is really where Theodolf gets to the, the meat of the matter of saying, look, language is absolutely key. We need to have this technical working knowledge of language. And of course, as Carolingians, we have it. But the Greeks have neglected this very relevant and critical discipline or disciplines. Um, and thus, they're, they're, they're bad Christians, basically. They're, they're not great Christians. Does that also then factor in to the inheritance uh, of Rome and imperial legitimacy? Or is this something that we're seeing sort of fought about in the discourse over linguistic education? Absolutely. And I, and I know folks will disagree with me perhaps on this, but I mean, we are ramping up. We're in the late 780s into the early 790s. Charlemagne is starting to adopt much more of a Roman imperial legitimacy and appealing to an inheritance of that Roman tradition much more consciously. And I think this is part of that program. Um, again, both that we not only are the inheritors to this intellectual Roman grammatical rhetorical tradition, but that dovetails, of course, with, well, we are the true Roman emperor. We are the true Roman empire. Um, and we're also the better Christians. So it, it goes on multiple angles. Absolutely. Yeah, let's get back to this question of who's a better Christian and why, according to Theodolf. You were just telling us earlier that Theodolf uh, was very critical of the Greeks' poor use of classical uh, linguistic education uh, in their interpretation of biblical text and especially in their treatment of the issue of iconoclasm. Can you give us an example of what exactly Theodolf disagreed with uh, in those texts, or, or an example of, of what he thought that they were doing wrong, how they weren't getting it right. I do feel it's necessary to at least mention, as I was saying about 
you know, the so clear demarcation in language that the Greeks actually had in the original acts of the Second Council of Nicaea, the mysterious translation problem that those very clearly demarcated terms between worship and reverence, which was appropriate to images, which wasn't, got completely wiped away in the Latin translation, which we think happened, you know, with the Vatican, I mean, in, in Rome. And that Latin edition that just used interchangeable words for worship and adore towards images instead of this nice worship versus reverence the Greeks were so careful about. That was the copy that Theodolf received, where it seemed that the Greeks, if you know, he wasn't reading the original Greek, he was only reading the Latin translation, that the Greeks had not a care in the world about worship, adore, etc. And it's such an odd, again, feature of this language thing that... Theodolf himself was reading from a poorly translated, linguistically incorrect or vocabularily incorrect version of this Second Council of Nicaea. Now, if he had either was able to read the original Greek or if the Greek had been accurately translated into Latin, would they have had the same problem with the Second Council of Nicaea? But that assumes, again, that it isn't really has all these undertones of intellectual, spiritual, political legitimacy in a program of trying to assert Carolingian dominance over the Byzantines. But it, it remains this question of why, if language was so important, did Theodolf not, either did he not know that there was a better version out there? Did he not know that the translation was so poor? It, it's the elephant in the room with the Opus Caroli. Well, Dr. Carlson, thank you for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to get to talk to you about your article. Anytime. It was a pleasure to talk to you. That's it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, awe at kwe wale.